for May 9th, 2022. It's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 723, Reality Breaks. Welcome to the Overthinking It Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're talking about the things we love, when we are exploring alternate dimensions, different realities, the multiverse itself. No, we're not talking about Doctor Strange, actually. I know, right? You're, you've turned, you've tuned into the Overthinking It podcast. You're expecting the latest hot takes uh, and Easter eggs and other surprises in the latest installment of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. No, we have actually chosen to spend our very limited, precious movie theater-going currency on a little movie called Everything, Everywhere, all at once. And as you can but probably there, imagine, there's a lot to overthink. If a I'm movie sure called a, everything another... all, all at once. And I'm here. That is the voice of Matt Belinky. <laughs> Matt, how you doing? I'm, I'm doing I was just musing on how there's like definitely another universe where we actually did watch Doctor Strange. I wonder I wonder how that went. Um I, I'm sure hor- horrifically. <laughs> this is like untold, unforeseen negative consequences just just spill out from there. And it's the end of the and it's the end of the world, actually. We cause the end of the world in that alternate universe. So we really got to discussion. Yeah, 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 pretty much. Um, okay. Um, yeah, we saw this movie, right? I, I, Matt, I saw this on your um, strong recommendation. Um, yeah, you basically I, said it was a staggering work of genius. Is that I, fair to I say? I honestly think this is the most impressed I've been with a movie since. And your mileage may vary here. I remember uh, 1917 was another one. And I think the common denominator among both those movies is that there's like a high level of technical craft in both. And then not only are they very emotional, well-done stories, but they feel like a, almost like a, like a show off kind of thing is like, you know, we're going to, we're going to make a movie on a level that not everyone can. And, and you're almost like holding your breath to see if they could pull it off. And obviously 1917, uh, very famously, uh, wasn't actually one shot, but was made to look as if it's one continuous right. tracking shot going in and out of, of battlefields. Uh, you know, and it, it's, uh, shot by, I think it was Roger Deakins shot the thing, the, the sort of legendary, uh, cinematographer. Um, but so this one is uh, quite the opposite in that, like, instead of just being one shot, this is so many shots. This is probably right up there with, um, like uh like requiem for a dream in terms of like how many cuts they can squeeze into a movie um because once it gets going this is a this is a movie where the action is unfolding in, in multiple universes simultaneously and you need to you're taking in what these characters are doing simultaneously in different lives and only by sort of like cutting back and forth between them and I'm sorry I'm choking up even just explaining it um you have to sort of take it all in simultaneously. And, and I mean, that's um, very much by design that the main character, as she sort of opens her mind to the parallel universes, uh, we're getting ahead of us a little, yeah. but it is, it is overwhelming for her and it's supposed to be overwhelming for the audience. She, she's, like, she's overwhelmed in her prime existence as well, too, which, yeah, is, which so, is really so important, even, like emotional grounding to, to, to establish the, all this. Yeah. So Matt Blinky, just like, Sketch out the plot for this for those who haven't seen this movie, and of course we're going to spoiler it. Spoiler it, um, but we should also say that this is not the kind of movie where we get a plot out, plot outline, and you get the gist for what this was about. Um, this is like a movie with a capital M 
where the experience, the sight, the sound, the music, the visuals, the effects, the action, all of it like really comes together for uh, for the complete package. And um, it is it is much, much more than a series of sequential events and uh, things that characters do and things that characters uh, characters happen to them. All that said, Belinky, um, give it a whirl. Okay, so Michelle Yao is Evelyn Wang. She runs a. Uh, uh, forgive me, I'm, I'm forgetting what city is it supposed to be in? They- I, I read some. It was not. I don't think it's uh, explicitly referenced in the anywhere. movie. It could be anywhere, but it's supposed to be somewhere in like Simi Valley, California, really out the uh, not not the coast okay. of California, but inland California. So she is a first generation immigrant who runs a laundromat. Um, kind of not a super successful laundromat that is, it's one of the first things we see is that the place is kind of falling apart and it's the kind of place where like she has to bang on machines with a broom handle to keep them working. Um, she is married to a very sweet man named Waymond, not Raymond, but Waymond with a, with a W. Right. Um, and he is, you know, where, where she is just sort of harried, you know, constantly stressed, constantly just sort of like running back and forth, trying to keep the various plates of her life spinning. He's like a very sweet soul. Um, one of the first things we see him doing is is he likes to stick these little googly eyes on everything to sort of like bring a certain levity to what could be like a very a, ve- a very sort of like humdrum uh, monotonous life. Yeah. Right. And, you know, he's, he's he's making these like small, cute little gestures, which Evelyn does not seem to appreciate at all. No. Right. That that no. like she is not amused by the googly eyes. Um, so they have an adult daughter. Uh, uh, his name is Joy. And she is like in her in her 20s somewhere. She has a little unclear. I guess she doesn't live with them. Right. But she you know, she has a close relationship with them. Yeah. She's over there a bunch. Um, and she has a father from mainland China whose name is Gong, and he is coming to visit. And the dynamic is very much that like she craves his approval and will never get it, that nothing that she does will ever be good enough for him, just as nothing that her daughter Joy does will ever be good enough for her. Yep. And all this stuff, this is not like spoilers from late in the movie. This is very masterfully laid out in the first five minutes as we see everyone running around, just sort of like getting ready for a, a, a busy Friday where on on the one hand, uh, Gong is coming in for a visit, so they're trying to like prepare everything uh, to sort of like put on an almost give a false impression that everything is going super well with the laundryman, everything is successful. But simultaneously, they are preparing; they are being audited, and uh, Waymond and Evelyn have to get all their documents together, which is like a nightmare of like you know just receipts in a variety of Manila envelopes that you know poorly organized, and they're dragging them into the IRS office to meet uh, Jamie Lee. <laughs> who plays Deirdre and Deirdre Bobiedra. <laughs> yeah, only in I believe in the end credits you learn that her name is Deirdre Bobiedra. Um and she is I mean, I, I think maybe this is a good time to say that everyone that I've mentioned so far is stellar in this movie. Um, because not not only are they stellar in their their primary roles, but all of these people play multiple versions of themselves, sometimes radically different multiple versions of themselves. That like uh Waymond, um, who is played by uh Kenu Kwan. Uh Kiwi Khan, Kiwi Kwan. Who you will remember as short short round from Indiana Jones. Um, either short round from Indiana Jones or Data from the Goonies. So he was like Steven Spielberg's basically handpicked. Uh, you know, basically discovered out of nowhere 
by Steven Spielberg, you know, was in these two giant blockbusters in the eighties and basically couldn't really find fulfilling work throughout the nineties. And I believe you pointedly know, as an Asian man. Yes, as an Asian man, I feel like there were roles that he was excited to take and walked away from acting about 20 years ago, has not had a credited role since the early 2000s, and this is his triumphant return. I think, you know, technically there is another movie that he did that came out before this because this was shot a couple years ago and it took a long time to edit and release, but this was the movie that sort of dragged him in from retirement. And he he is the real star of this movie to me. That mm-hmm. like for reasons that we'll get into later. He is has this is taking nothing a, away from Michelle Yeoh's amazing. You know, I mean, so many people do such a great job um, in this movie, including I. I don't want to forget to talk about Jamie Lee Curtis, who is so uh, funny but also affecting and fearless in the you know as especially as somebody who used to be somewhat of a glamorous starlet. Uh, is is really just an ugly, bordering on repulsive character yeah. in this movie, and leans in, has so much fun, just being being this real sort of trollish woman, and turns um, into something else entirely by the end. It's really, it's yeah. really incredible stuff. We should we should round out the rest of the plot summary here. Uh, take okay. us home, take so, us home. Just like, like set the stages, and then like you know, we, we can't go over like you know, uh, setting the stage is important, um, and then just like kind of give like the loose. Um, uh, uh, outline of uh, the events and yeah. after that. So Evelyn is is already juggling a lot. She's trying to go to this audit. She has to drag her dad there and lie to him about the purpose of the audit. But luckily, he doesn't really understand English, so it's not going to be a problem. Like he doesn't understand that they're at an audit. She just sort of says that they're trying to expand the business, and he accepts it. Um, but then, like while they're in the elevator, all of a sudden, her husband takes off his glasses and addresses her oh, in a. He skipped an important setup point. Time. Uh, like oh, he, which, which is that uh, her husband um, drops the bomb on her that uh, he wants to file for a divorce. Oh, I don't even think he drops the bomb. We see that he's planning to, but she doesn't get I, – I believe she doesn't discover the papers until after – like like we know that he is planning to file for divorce. Um, but basically like early in the movie, she is like so frazzled that she – can't even give him like a minute to talk. And so he is unable to even like give her the papers that he's carrying around. And she inadvertently discovers them later in the movie when they're already in the middle of like a life and death action sequence. And then, then she's like, wait a second, what is this? But anyway, like her husband, uh, addresses her in a voice that that doesn't seem to be his that is a completely different tone of command and confidence um the first of many uh, fascinating transformations that actor will pull off and basically just says it, it, there's a there's a matter the universe the fate of the universe hangs in the balance gives her a set of instructions that he scribbles on the back of a piece of paper which later does turn out to be a right. a, a divorce petition the set of instructions are somewhat bizarre they are they include um you have to take off your shoes and put them on the opposite feet there's a couple more steps but this is this is the first of many i believe what's called in the movie jump pads i think so yeah which is so and and then but uh, we'll, we'll get back to that because the jump pads are a lot of fun and and one of the real places where this movie leans into the comedy part of itself um 
But basically, like when she does this, she is sucked into a a slightly different parallel reality where instead of being in the audit, she is in the closet of the IRS office. And in the closet, she could talk to a different version of Waymond. And Waymond then starts to plot dump on her. And one of the things I admire about this movie, by the way, is this movie is extremely plotted. There is a lot of exposition and there is a lot of explanation about how things work. And it is all handled very deftly. Yeah, You know, that, that it feels like like I could sit here for 20 minutes and explains how how the multiverse works in this movie and it's probably not going to be a lot of fun but it's a lot of fun to see Wayman explain it and to see Wayman demonstrate it um so Mark this might be a good time there are I was thinking about this today there are actually three different ways that you can interact with the multiverse in this movie okay so way number one is I think honestly, like directly inspired by the matrix, which is that like without leaving your own universe, you can access the skills of another version of yourself, skills, memories, emotions, I believe. Right. Which is exactly the same as like in the matrix where like you can, you know, learn Kung Fu all of a sudden or in in this movie, they do. I mean, in the matrix, it's really just Kung Fu, but in this movie, there's very specific things you need to know. Like she needs to know, uh, knife skills, right? And she literally patches into a version of herself that got a job at Betty Hanna's, yeah. right? And then, like, having access that versions of herself's memories, she is all of a sudden a maestro at, like, n- not just, like, knives, but, like, um, flashy knife uh, choreography. Yeah, Hibachi Chef, I think. Is yeah, the- but then the, the fun thing about this is it's not, a, you know, you do, um, you're, you're, on the, you're on the phone, an interdimensional phone line with somebody who is basically an operator who has a fancy computer and can tell you what you need to do to access these skills. But instead of it just being like, oh, we'll down you that right away, you have to do something called a jump pad. And a jump pad is something that you that you need to do that is so bizarre, something that you would never in a million years think to do yourself, that it basically is just like, you know, a one in a billion shot that gives you the, you know, is a springboard for like accessing another version of your life. And that sort of like allows you to like all the memories come flooding into you. So like one of these that's demonstrated very early in the movie is like Waymond is about to be like he, the IRS guards are surrounding him. So he needs, he needs to engage in, in some hand to hand combat. And he like very slowly, very deliberately goes into his fanny pack, takes out a chapstick and eats the entire <laughs> chapstick. Just like eats the, you know, while the security guards watch him. And in the act of eating that chapstick, that becomes the jump pad to learning, which is, and it's actually, I mean, one of the things I should say is that like, um, this is an action movie and all the action is so playfully done is so both executed at an extremely high level because obviously Michelle Yao is uh, tremendous at this stuff and has been doing it for, for a lifetime at this point, but is like choreographed with a real sense of humor. And a lot of the fights have like a fun little twist and not, I'm, I'm loath to reveal all of it. But like, you know, one of the fun things is in this initial fight scene, he takes off his fanny pack and he uses the fanny pack as a lethal weapon. At one point, reaching into an a IRS goldfish tank and grabbing a bunch of pebbles out of the goldfish tank and using it to to provide weight to the fanny pack so he can spit it around and like use it, use it as like a, a brutal weapon to send IRS agents like flying through cubicles and stuff like that. So it's this whole fanny pack um, a brutal fight scene. Yeah, it's it's it is delightful. If you haven't seen this and you're still with us, like first of all, like you know, kudos to you. Like 
stick with us. We'll, 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 you know, we'll, we'll do the overthinking stuff. Um, but, um, yeah, it is delightful and deliriously fun as, as, uh, it's, it's more delightful and deliriously fun than you can possibly imagine as we are just like, you know, frenetically trying to relate here. Um, okay. Yeah. So we're, we're going off, we're, we're branching off in so many different multiverses here, Blinky. Like, um, let, let me just try to like kind of sketch out like the, 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 the kind of the, the guts of the movie and the okay. emotional stakes. Uh, and then we'll, uh, dive in some, some yeah, we haven't even explained here. why the world yeah. is, a, as the, the, world, the world's in danger because, her daughter um, is descending into a nihilistic despair, basically, like in in the quote unquote real world, as well as in like various multiverses, and has become this like harbinger of the apocalypse. And one of the main one of one of many reasons why her life is going to despair is because she is a lesbian. Uh, her mother will not acknowledge it, and like you know, refuse to introduce her her daughter's girlfriend to her. Um, to to the father to the grandfather figure um as the girlfriend instead of as you know good friend you know that kind of just uh, just you know cannot uh, acknowledge her daughter for herself and and, and see her self-worth uh, that's one of many things that um makes her sad makes her miserable she becomes um this like you know um all-powerful um you know super villain essentially like like you might see in a superhero movie um and her her goal is basically just annihilate everything right like nothing matters um just like kill it all like make it all go away, and and like, and it is all encapsulated. It is all physically embodied in an everything bagel, a deep, dark, impossibly black everything bagel that will like yeah, threaten to consume is, the entire. Which universe. is basically like a, a yeah. doomsday weapon that she has been crafting out of like you know dark matter and 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 pure concentrated. Uh, depression and, and, it, and it, salt it, and sesame seeds yeah she does mention that seeds. it contains salt and poppy <laughs> seeds and everything yeah. um and it's an everything bagel and and it's almost complete and when it's done it's going to annihilate the multiverse which she wants because it, it's the the burden of seeing everything the burden of of knowing you know of having experienced trillions of universes where you never existed where life never existed is is too much and she longs for annihilation yeah and so michelle Yeoh's character evelyn she takes all that on herself um but comes out the other side um rather with um you know a nihilistic point of view but one of like unending um what's a good word for it like uh fellow feeling love <laughs> you know um and 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 through all of that like you know manages to patch up or reconcile a whole host of different relationships including uh that with her husband her her her, her father her daughter um and saves the multiverse um that's pretty much how it went right yeah yeah <laughs> and i like i like that you know because in any in one of these movies where there's one character and that character is told that like you're the only one who can do this, there's got to be some kind of a fig leaf of a reason. Like why are they the only one? And the explanation for why not just Evelyn but this particular Evelyn is that she is a failure at everything. That this particular Evelyn, she has made every wrong le- – it's, it's like a George Costanza type yeah. thing. That <laughs> she, every- she is her worst self. Right. Yeah. yeah. That phrase, that's always that, that cliche phrase, you know, like be your best self, live your best life. This is living your worst life. And, and the great thing is that, that there, you know, when Waymond is explaining this to her, Alpha, what's known as Alpha Waymond, because he comes from the first universe where the multiverse was sort of discovered and pioneered. So he's the sort of one who's been, been fighting this war against the, the, you know, the powers that would destroy the multiverse. And he is so excited and so joyful when he explains to her that she is just, a complete train wreck that every possible decision that she could have been made, she's made wrong. 
that there are so many lives that she could have lived that would have been happy and successful and she has screwed them all up. And because of that, she has so many possibilities that she could tap into. It gives her, she has a, a greater potential to access skills and memories and abilities from other timelines because there are so many other lives that she just missed the boat on. Yeah. Which is like, you know, you can see like he's explaining this to her and it's just like twisting the night because obviously she's disappointed by her miserable life. Yeah. But he's just so, you know, he's, he's like, you have the potential to be anything because you are so bad at everything. So, let's, let's, let's pause for a moment and, and double click on this for a second, right? It's on one hand, it is a trope that we've seen in a lot of different movies, right? Kind of a nobody, a loser, whether it's Luke Skywalker or Sarah Connor, right? You know, destiny calls and then, you know, they, they, and then they unlock their potential, right? But this is different, right? This is a, an, a, an, an Asian, like a middle-aged woman, uh, immigrant woman who has already lived, you know, a good portion of her life. Um, and that these are people that, you know, in, in storytelling are often not seen as having potential, right? So, I mean, this is one of like many ways that this movie cleverly inverts, uh, subverts expectation and, um, you know, uh, uh, sets up a structure that, um, uh, that you're not expecting that, uh, that helps reveal surprises later on. Yeah. And I mean, well, you know, besides the, idea that like she's really bad at everything and that's why she's the chosen one the reason why evelyn in general is the sort of linchpin of this thing is there are two ways to look at it one positive and one negative so the positive one is that she was the scientist who discovered the multiverse that in 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 another life instead of running a laundromat she is like an astrophysicist and she discovers this multiverse technology so that sort of put her at the center of all this but then the bad way to look at it is she is the one who who basically pushes her daughter or uses her daughter as a guinea pig and accidentally exposes her daughter to the sort of totality of existence and causes her to experience every possible universe at once and drives her insane to the, to the point where she wants to annihilate the entire universe just to end it. So in a way she is responsible for the, the threat, but she's also, you know, the, the, there's a universe where she is Rick, right? For Rick and Morty, where she's the smartest person that existed. She's the one who solves the problems that nobody else can solve. But it's also her psychic pain, her generational pain that she's passed along that is the threat. So yeah. she she is, you know, both, both the hero and the villain. Yeah, well, she is everything. She is yes. everywhere, and she's doing all that all at once. <laughs> right. But of course, uh, in another way, this is uh, she's done well. Uh, sorry, she hasn't done the first thing. The Evelyn that we know is not a scientist and did not invent any of this. But she does. It seems like every version of Evelyn is somewhat responsible for for you know a level of emotional abuse on her daughter. So she needs to come to terms with the fact that like you know she's she didn't do the thing that was originally done to the joy to turn her into a monster. But she's doing a thing to her joy that's just as bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh gosh. Okay, so so many places we can go with this. Yeah. Um. Let's 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 pick one. Pick one universe that we want to inhabit for a little All bit right. here. Well, okay. So I I just the the to close out the thread I started before. So the different ways that multiverses work in this movie because and and honestly this is one of the places where you know I was mentioning it's the explication is handled so well because. 
I, I could see how in another version of the movie, the first note that would come back from a producer would be like, there are too many different mechanics. Either do the thing where it's the Matrix and you can sort of access skills or do the thing where you can jump between different bodies, but you can't do them both. But this movie does the both and it doesn't get confusing. So the first thing you could do that we talked about is that you stay in your universe, but you sort of you access a skill set that you need to make it through like a fun action sequence. Right. The second thing you could do is actually jump into another universe and you you get to you you're living in someone else's body. So for instance there's a there's a scene where she finds herself in a version of her that is a movie star at a premiere, right? At the back of a limo in a fancy gown. Um but it's it's clearly it's, you know, she doesn't know exactly where, you know, when she's wandering down the red carpet, she's obviously stunned and disoriented, right? right. So it's it's her mind from the laundromats version, but in another body, right. right? But then there's another thing that happens later on where she kind of experiences, she can kind of spectate on that universe um, but with the, with the sort of the, the mind of the Evelyn that lives in that universe and the driver's seat. And so that we see, we return to that scene, the movie star scene where she gets to meet up with a version of Waymond. Um, and this is a universe where they did not stay together, where they sort of, uh, as a uh, young lovers, they decided like not to be together and they both achieved this level of career success and wealth and, and, you know, that, uh, is much greater than they did in the laundromat universe. But you see them sort of reminisce about like what could have been wonder, like what would have our lives been like if we had stayed together. And so, so there are these three things, right. That you can, you can jump into another body. You can just sort of see what the other body sees and sort of experience their life choices, but without controlling them, or you could access their skills and pull them into your own life. And all three of these things are happening yeah. with increasing frequency later in the movie. And the 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 thing that gets really clever is that a lot of these universes, sort of early early in the movie, when you know she she finds herself sort of sucked into these universes, um, you know, trying to escape a dangerous situation, or you know, she's trying to access skills, but she messes it up because she's not good at this yet. And she finds herself somewhere outlandish, right? Somewhere that she didn't want to be. It could easily, you you can see how this movie is a chance for these like one-off gags, right? Because if there's a universe where literally everything is true, there could be like any weird visual gag and it could be like a one-off. But the, the, the thing about this movie that really impressed me is a lot of these universes that just seem like jokes that you never expect to see again, we return to later in the movie and they find ways to give them surprising depth and real, real sort of like emotionally moving moment. I'm trying to decide uh, which one you want to do the hot dog. The, the hot dog fingers. Yeah. Is, is probably the, 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 the most ultra. It's not even actually the weirdest one, but it's the one that's in the trailer. Um, that like is, as it strikes probably is most memorable. Um, because it is so out of left field, but it also combines like familiar faces that you know of actors with, um, this, uh, dare I say grotesque image. Right. So I, I forget exactly how she, it's a, a complete mistake that she wants to like go to a universe that has some level of useful skills. She like doesn't do it right or, or doesn't, you know, uh, gets the jump pad wrong, but like tries to push the button and jump anyway and ends up going to a completely random universe that's like incredibly unlikely where humans have evolved to have these long, wavy hot dogs appendages, these sort of like wobbly. Uh, really disturbing, fun, funny, but also kind of icky. You can imagine what they would feel like to be sort of fondled by those hot dog fingers. 
Um, but I, it, it, I think <laughs> humorously in that universe, she is still at the laundromat. She's she's at the laundromat. She has the exact same customers as before, but just all herself and all her customers. And, and in fact, she's watching the exact same soap opera on the TV at the laundromat that we see her see at the beginning. But everyone in the soap opera also has the hot dog figures. And they're also vomiting up ketchup and mustard. <laughs> yes, they vomit up ketchup and mustard onto each other. Um, and it's super disturbing, right? So that's the first time we see it. And it's just kind of like, a, whoa, you messed up this jump thing. But later in the movie, we come back and we see that in that reality, there is a crucial difference, um, which is that she is uh, not with Waymond, but she is with the IRS agent played by Jamie Lee Curtis. Right. Um, who, like in a romantic relationship with. Yeah, yeah. And like up to this point in the movie, the, the IRS agent is just a horribly is, – is a comic relief character and how sort of um, – I don't know. How would you even describe her? That she's just uh, as unpleasant as she could be. Joy's being yeah. unpleasant. It's like, like in her base state is like just like you know a a, a caricature of an unpleasant bureaucrat. Yeah, um, and then become zombie, and becomes you know, and then becomes like a zombie, like yes, Hulk's out. Right. So she, so she's um all I can think of is Roz from Monsters Inc. Is like Wachowski, you gotta file your form, Wachowski. You know, this sort of like glowering cubicle creature. Um, and then later, like her body is taken over by disciples of of the the evil from another universe and used to attack, which means that like, and I never thought that I'd live to see this, where uh Jamie Lee Curtis has an action scene with Michelle Yao where they they're engaging in Kung Fu based on skills that they have like sucked in from parallel universes. Um, and, uh, I imagine that that was one of many things that was very fun for Jamie Lee Curtis to do in this movie. Mm. But we, we see so that like, you know, up until the very late in the movie, she is just a comic relief antagonist. And then we see that there is a universe where they are lovers and they have real tenderness and they conflict. Yeah, no, they, they like, we, we see them sort of like break up, but then like tearfully get back together. And it's this moment um, that's, and I mean, one of the, there's so many bizarre things going at that point in the movie that's difficult to remember what <laughs> details, but like one of the things we see is that like Jamie Lee Curtis uh, loves to play piano, but because in that reality, they have um, hot dog fingers that everyone plays piano with their toes. Yeah. Um, and uh, she, there is in fact a rendition, a sort of a touching rendition of Claire de Lune that is slightly marred by the fact that like whoever played it was attempting to play it with their toes. Um, and it becomes this metaphor for like making do with what you have and creating something beautiful out of um, circumstances that, that are less than ideal and about how like they're in, and also like finding the humanity, even in people who yeah. seem completely inhuman. Right. It's and, really, and that, yeah. That is like the, 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 the emotional linchpin or not that particular, but that, that is like the emotional through line of the movie, finding humanity, finding goodness, even in dark times. Right. It is the antidote to the pure nihilism of the daughter character like that. The, yeah. you know, the, the, her reaction to negativity is um, just a, a nonstop descent into nihilism. Whereas Evelyn's character, like, you know, responds with love. I mean, this is, in, in a way, <laughs> Matt, is this not a movie where the power of love saves us all? Yeah, I mean, it's one of many movies where the the the, the one that I'm thinking of that, like, I, I wonder, I haven't read it in so long. Is Do you remember A Wrinkle of Time? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, 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 yes. So a Wrinkle it was of Time a very mediocre it, movie adaptation not that long ago, which but, we did cover on the it, podcast. But... but 
see, now I think I, I said it offhandedly, but the more I think of it, the more there might be something to this. Because isn't there also a multiverse component of that? Isn't there also sort of like the whole point is like there are different realities and there the monster threatens all possible realities. I think so. Yeah, it's it's been it's been a minute since I've read that um, movie or seen that movie. And the mo- monster. Okay, wait. No, actually, now I really want to reread a wrinkle of time because it might be the Rosetta Stone for this entire movie. Because doesn't the monster take the form of the little brother or like possess the little yes. brother? Yeah, it absolutely does. Right? So yeah. it's the kind of thing where like there's this monster, but the monster is linked to a loved one in a way that like you know, and 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 some of the some of the well-meaning allies of the main character is like, you got to kill, you got to kill the loved one because killing the loved one is the only way to kill the monster. And that's the, it's for the greater good. Right. Mm -hmm. And instead of doing that, the protagonist obviously chooses the power of love is chooses to appeal to the humanity inside the monster. I I think, Um, yeah, the way the book reads is like, she just says, like, I love you. I love you. I love you. And and that more or less like that breaks the spell. Yeah. Which like sometimes it works. Right. And other times it doesn't. Um, the, the the obligatory Terminator reference here, right? Like, okay, so earlier there's like straight up a "Come with me if you want to live" moment between um, Wayman and and Evelyn, which is fantastic, yeah. and, and Eve, the Eve character of Evelyn owes quite a bit to Sarah Connor. Um, but like, you know, a, a great example of the power of level save us is in Terminator Three: Rise of the Machines, where the the the, the Terminator is infected by Skynet's programming and um, his love of John Connor, John Connor's love of the Terminator defeats the evil uh, malevolent programming i can't like, believe that's, you voluntarily brought up terminator 3 as like a, a touch point here it's 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 not that bad actually especially compared to okay this is neither here nor there this, that, that, is, that is that is an alternate universe two, which we're not gonna spend too much time in this is this is like in about a year we're gonna have a conversation about how like indiana jones and the crystal skull actually had some good points no 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 not going the, there in comparison no. <laughs> I need, um, I need to jump pad. I need to jump pad back to back to the other, other timeline. <laughs> okay, but then so you know now now we're getting into deep spoilers for the third act. So that at first, as Evelyn starts to embrace her role as like the savior, starts to master the jump pads, the the idea that like I can access any skills from any reality and use it to 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 overcome any foe. That her plan is that I'm going to out kung fu. Every, I'm I'm going to physically overpower everyone in my path, which works to a certain point, but is not going to work against her daughter, who is the absolute master of the multiverse and has effortless, it, which is uh, I think best expressed through her amazing fashion choices. That she is in a <laughs> variety of completely insane outfits, which change at the drop of a hat. You know that 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 she she wears everything all at once, um, and attempts to sort of like. Uh, overpower her physically are laughably unsuccessful. Right. And then, you know, th- at that that point in the movie, she's sort of um, in touch with these different realities, and she kind of overhears through another Evelyn something that Waymond is saying, you know, about the way that he lives his life, you know, and and I'm gonna I'm not gonna do this monologue justice. It's a really beautiful monologue, and he's just sort of like, you know, I know you think of yourself as a fighter, and I think I'm a fighter too, and that's something that I don't think your dad ever appreciated about me, and maybe you never appreciated about me because the way I fight is through kindness. Yep. Um, yep. And, and he gives it was you beautiful. Know, and, it was really it, great. Yeah, it, it probably comes off as hackney the way I'm going to say it, but it's this beautiful thing about how like life is hard. Everyone is struggling and that like the greatest superpower of all is just sort of like empathy and kindness and just not 
you know, like not lashing out in anger, even when anger would be completely justified. And we see him pull this off in the in the sort of primary reality, the laundromat reality, several times when the Jamie Lee Curtis character is about to imprison them or, you know, take away the laundromat because Evelyn is not somebody who reacts with kindly. Evelyn is is defensive and um, prickly and um, does not react to the audit very well at all. But Waymond somehow manages to talk Jamie Lee Curtis into like extension after extension. Um, And, you know, I think there's, there's one part like late in it where like Jamie Lee Curtis is like really flown off the deep end. Sorry. uh, uh, Evelyn is really flown off the deep end and like, you know, physically attacked the auditor, you know, done things that you shouldn't be able to bounce back from. And Waymond somehow talks to her like one-on-one and gets her to, forgive them and give them another chance. And Evelyn, at that point in the movie, she has these almost omniscient powers, right? That she can access any skill, you know, and and see anything that's going on. And she is dumbfounded about how he pulled this off. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I feel like, I feel like that is low key. One of the turning points of the movie where she realizes that like, there's this power that goes beyond just sort of like being able to access uh, Ginsu knife tricks at the drop of a hat, which is just the ability to sort of like listen and make eye contact and connect to somebody else's pain. Um, and, and, you know, it sort of symbolizes like late in the movie when she realizes that the way to win is not through like physical force, but through empathy, she takes on her symbol, one of the googly eyes. Right. And it's, it's a shot from the trailer that is like immensely powerful and kind of like uh, honestly like people in my theater were cheering when it happened <laughs> almost like when it was like in the the matrix where like sort of like neo gets back up to fight the agent it, and it's, it's sort of yeah. like yeah and it's sort of like this moment where like the hero like finally gets it and she, she puts on the eye and which was point i did not come up with this but it it is certainly intentional that the eye is the exact opposite of the bagel yeah, yeah the bagel yeah, yeah, being yeah. a black circle with a white center and the eye being a white circle with a black center and it's like the bagel is this force of a this destructive force and the eye is this empathetic force this yeah. the the force the power of kindness it, and it, it is also is like true it is true sight Sight beyond yes. sight. Right. Sight beyond sight. Right. And it's, and it's so be- – because it starts out and, – and it's it starts out as a sort of metaphor for like being – ejecting some levity into the boredom, uh, the tedium of existence. But then this sort of like um, – the, the wider thing is like this is a man who's in the process of trying to divorce this woman, right? Right. He like doesn't want to be with her and he's still trying to do everything he can – to make her smile. And it's like the, the, the eye becomes the symbol of like, you know, this, this is like real, real goodness. And, or, or, or maybe like the way to break the cycle of people being hurt and right. so caught up in their own feelings of hurt were between like the father and the daughter and her daughter. And like, nobody is, nobody is connecting. Everyone is disappointed in everyone yeah. is there's this one guy who has every reason to walk away. It chooses to like wake up every day and put these googly eyes on everything. Yeah. And so like all this comes together, right? They had this like pure rap- rapturous culmination 
of uh, all of her powers come together in, in the big climactic action sequence where it's not her beating people up, but she like she uses her agility to then uh, like you know dodge attacks, but then also physically and emotionally connect with people. And so we see this in like a rapid succession, right? Like eight people, she heals the lives of eight people across eight different universes. Yeah, like I mean, that. It's, and it's like a and, little, it's a little bit forced, but it also is a lot of fun. Where she she basically could see all of these people's lives, and therefore cause she could see like sort of their pain, what they're missing, or and I mean, in some cases, it's 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 answers that she had all along. Like one of the people attacking her is somebody who like mentions earlier on about how this particular perfume reminds him of his dead wife or something you know and it's like a throwaway line in the first five minutes of the movie that she doesn't pay attention to because she's busy with her own problems and he also comes off as creepy yeah no and it is creepy it's definitely a creepy thing to say to like a random stranger at the laundromat where you work at but the fact is like you know that it's you know she comes back to it and instead of being creeped out or being um you know, aggressive about it, that she chooses to understand that this is like a lonely, weird dude who, you know, doesn't know how to connect to people and misses somebody who was very dear to him and like gives him this moment of, of connection, uh, by, by channeling this, I forget how she does it, but I think she, she captures, you know, something about the scent and it sort of like subdues him for a minute or it snaps him out of, the uh the the sort of the the anger and the, it breaks the mind control right yeah 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 yeah, yeah. And, and um and by the way like you know this is a really great example of how the execution of this movie um is uh, i'm not gonna say flawless but it is on it is on um a level that you rarely ever see in a movie because so much of what we just talked about can be like the emotional stuff could be seen as very hackneyed, trite, and in some ways cliche, right? You know, like we said before, you know, the power of love saves you is is a trope, a well worn trope in popular culture. Um, and like the rapid succession with which she heals all these relationships goes super fast, um, but it it just works because it's all set up, um, it's laid out, um, you know, earlier on in the movie, and, and again, like it's the combination of sight and sound. Um, you know, action, character, all the elements of movie making, uh, m- music as well. All, they all come together to sell the moment, to sell the feelings. Um, it is really tremendous. It, it also, I would say, if you haven't seen this movie, and this is all sounds like really overwhelming, like it might be. We, I, we we'll we'll link to a, a New Yorker review that basically said this movie is too much and there's no substance. It's like okay. I can sort of see how you might come away from that. Um, it's a very there's, glitzy there's, fortune cookie, right? Where like the 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 wisdom is all right. Like once you once you peel away all the music, and you know these guys did. Uh, if you don't know anything about Daniels, they came up doing music videos. I will never forget uh, their turn down for what music video, which is something which actually stars one of the Danielses. Um, as the as the 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 main uh, uh, roof breaking uh, protagonist, mm-hmm. um, if you don't know the the video, you should definitely check it out right away. The only other feature that they've done is Swiss Army Man, which is the the infamous Daniel Radcliffe <laughs> is a decomposing corpse movie who who, um, who who farts and propels a boat across water. Yeah, which yeah. is which is also another one where it's like very cartoony on the surface, but then like it sneaks up on you that like the more you watch it, the more it's like, oh wait, this is actually affecting. This is it's almost like they they pose a challenge for themselves, which is like, can we take something 
which is and, – and Mark, I, I, I wonder if we should bring up the raccoons just to give an example of like how yeah, ridiculous yeah. they let themselves get but then sort of challenge themselves to like, no, but like we need to take it seriously and we need to make people – we need to make people choke up about it or else we haven't earned it. Yeah. OK. So let's do the raccoon stuff. OK. So earlier in the movie um, when she's trying to explain to her daughter and her father what's going on. Uh, her daughter, her husband, uh, and, and her father, what's going on. She says that basically, like, you know, um, people are coming, they're possessed, um, like in that movie, Rakukui. What she's trying to say is Ratatouille, right? The, the Pixar movie Ratatouille, where, um, you know, the rat is remote controlling, um, uh, Remy, or uh, the, the, the chef, um, but it comes up as Raccoon Kui or something like that. And, um, her daughter and her husband uh, ridicule her for butchering this cultural reference, and also like in, in, in a sideways way, uh, butcher, you know, uh, criticizing, you know, making fun of her for her broken English as well. And this, by the way, we, we should come back to this, but it's, this is absolutely a story about immigrants. Um, about it is about the Asian American experience. It really, really is. Um, but we'll get to more of that in, in a second. Um, so that what what was going to be a throwaway joke, which was a very a good funny throwaway joke, then becomes. Um, an actual emotional resonant, resonant through line um, that gets resolved in the climax we mentioned before, where um, you know as, as she in- inhabits the Benihana chef uh, existence in one of the one of the universes, <laughs> one of her, her rival chef um, who she dislikes um, and, and is compared unfavorably to, uh, she reveals as <laughs> having a raccoon under his chef hat controlling him, and that causes him to get fired. And then she feels bad about it and helps. Yeah, helps animal control shows yeah. up to take the raccoon away in a cage. Oh my god, it's so good! It's and then, so good. But it, it becomes another one of those moments, exactly like the IRS auditor, where like you know she sits with the fellow chef who's like on the sidewalk, just despondent, just talking about how the raccoon was his best friend, and he doesn't know what he's going to do now without the raccoon and then she feels like wow uh even though this guy was like my workplace rival and he was he was making me look bad at work through his raccoon uh aided you know his raccoon enhanced uh, benihana's type uh knifery um i feel really sorry for him and i i want him to have his best friend back and they they she does uh jump on his shoulders and grab his hair and and pilot him uh, yeah. running down the yep. street. And they, they do get the, they, they reunite. They reunite. Chef and raccoon are reunited. The, the um, icing at the particular cake is the raccoon is voiced by Randy Newman, who also provides, it does not appear in the movie. It, I, I respect them even more for this. There, it is not in the movie, but it is on the soundtrack. Randy Newman did write a theme song for Raccoon, raccoon Nui, <laughs> um, where it's like a, a exact, and of course he's done a lot of the Pixar songs, including the Toy Story one. And so this is like a Pixar style, Randy Newman, sort of like jazzy New Orleans type song about, um, you know, it's, it's like something like, you know, ain't this crazy? Just a couple of mammals making gravy. <laughs> uh, Oh and it's pretty, well, I like the idea that like even with an extremely tight budget. By the way, this movie costs I think twenty five billion dollars. Looks looks like uh, hundreds of millions. They really did a tremendous amount with the little. That the the action is great. The special effects are very uh, elegantly done, not overdone. You know, there's a lot of practical camera work. Um, but I like that they found the money in the budget to pay Randy Newman to write them a song that they didn't yeah. even use in the movie. Yeah, yeah. As well, uh, Apparently, uh, paying the band that wrote "Story of a Girl" to re-record several versions of the song "Story of a Girl." <laughs> this movie has it, it's it is so aptly titled. 
Rarely has yeah. there been a movie that has been so aptly titled. But to round, r- to round out the raccoon stuff, yeah, um, we start flying in a million other directions and millions of other multiverses. Um, the, 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 beyond everything that we just talked about before, there's this whole other piece of it as well, which is that, like, you have this, um, transformative aspect where, you know, she makes the story her own, right? She butchered it. Like, you know, she's made fun of it because she doesn't understand the, the cultural reference. Um, but then she makes it real. She makes it her own. She owns it. And then she uses that as a, a, a path for healing and an avenue for connection. So like that, that's like, that is like, you know, the, the level at which all this is operating, not a throwaway joke. It is really, um, actually something quite important to the movie. Yeah. Or that, that there is no wrong version of the story that like her version of the story is just as true in yeah. some universe yeah. as the Pixar version of the story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good way to put it. Um, um okay so uh yeah. let's okay let's let's we, we did the weird stuff um let's let's round out some of the other cultural references we've we've checked off a lot of boxes so far um Blicky, where okay. do you want to start with that well i mean i i i thought it was so the three things i i came out of here uh wanted to talk about is like the matrix which i think is certainly for an a- the action scenes especially like that's it's almost a parody of the matrix because like you're sort of like on the cell phone with somebody who's the operator can sometimes like give you information about like where the exits are or like where the guards are. And and the Um, operator, by the way, you know, is, is in a, a rickety van with props that are only slightly more put together than what you would see on an SNL sketch. Like Like, very endearingly low budget monitors duct taped together and everything. And the operator is the one who's like, okay, I've got a, I've got a reality where you know you're you're like a Mongolian wrestler and like you need to you need to uh swallow this pen to to access it you know like gives you tips like that and then so so that's that's the matrix aspect um so, but then it it was hard not to especially when it got to some of these sort of philosophical implications of knowing about the multiverse hard not to think about Rick and Morty and it was after I saw this movie that I, I read um, an interview with the directors. I read a bunch of interviews with the directors because I'm fascinated by the kind of people who would think this up and, and how they pulled it together because it seems such an achievement. Um, and they said that they've been writing this movie for a long time, right? They started on the script like 10 years ago. Originally, by the way, it was supposed to – it was being written for Jackie Chan with yep. maybe Michelle Yao being the wife. Um, yep. and, so there is an I, alternate universe yes, where this movie starts Jackie Chan. Universe. Um, and I think it's it, to their credit that I think they realized that there were additional sort of emotional resonances that they could get out by gender flipping the main character. It wasn't a question where like Jackie Chan passed, or I don't think it was. I think they they thought it was more more profound to to flip it around. But in any case, they they were doing the multiverse stuff before Rick and Morty season two, and that's where it started to really go deep into that. Um, and they said that like as those episodes came out, they were very upset. Because they, they, it was literally like Rick and Morty stealing our best ideas mm-hmm. um, to the point where they stopped watching Rick and Morty and they forbid <laughs> any of their friends from telling them about Rick and Morty. And it is true that like when you see it, um, especially the, the episode I was thinking of, the, I think it's the first interdimensional cable one where um, – Summer, you know, so the the whole idea of interdimensional cable is you could sit down and watch TV and you could see um, what's going on. Like it's basically TV stations for parallel universes. And it is kind of an excuse for the writers to have a bunch of like one off weird ideas that just like surreal things that have no connection to anything. But then they also use it to explore like, you know, people get glimpses of what their own lives might be in parallel universes. Um, 
in summer, the sister realizes that like she was an unplanned pregnancy, which it's amazing that she didn't realize that before. Cause I think her parents are supposed to be like in high school when they had her. Um, and she like resolves to run away from home in that. And so Morty runs up to her room to try to convince her to stay and tells her the secret based on an episode in season one, that she's not even his real sister because in an episode in season one, the, the uh, Rick and Morty messed up the universe so badly, messed up the entire world, um, that the, the, the sort of a punchline at the end of that episode was that they jumped to a parallel reality where the world was fine, except for that they themselves had been killed in a freak accident and basically just like cleaned up mm. their mangled bodies that had just been killed in the accident, buried them in the backyard and decided to take their places. And I, I wonder to this day, how much they really thought through the implications of that episode. Because I think, I think at one point it was almost just supposed to be like a dark joke about like, Oh, what if Rick and Morty got into a problem that like even the greatest scientist in the world couldn't solve. And he doubled down on like feeling like he could solve it instead of asking for help. And eventually he just had to like abandon the entire universe. But they've since then, like, I mean, now we're in Rick and Morty season five, really thought a lot about that moment and thought a lot about the existential horror of jumping to another universe where everything is the same, but you're not, or knowing that like those universes are out there, even if you don't take them up and about like how you live your life, knowing that at any point you could just get up and go, you know? And, and, and that like, you know, does anything count if everything is true? Right. Um, and anyway, just to kind of wrap that up there, like, does it, uh, does it land definitively on a, a particular stance? Yeah, no. There's is, a it, is it hopeful, quotes. or is it, or is it is nihilistic, or is it even like not even on that spectrum? Um, I mean, there's there's a somewhat famous Rick and Morty quote that I wish Pete were here because I know he knows it by heart. He's talked about it on the podcast before. I I distinctly remember the episode was where we were trying to fan cast Idris Elba. And we were coming up with ideas of what Idris Elba could do besides the Bond films. And for some reason, like uh, Pete was trying to shove Idris Elba into Rick and Morty based on this, based on that, he could pull off the, the, this particular seat where sort of Morty explains that like, look, you're not actually my sister. My own sister is like a, I abandoned her in a universe and now I eat breakfast like a hundred feet away from like my own decaying body. Like none of us are supposed to be here. Everything's an accident we're all going to die. Come watch TV with me. Like that's basically the critical line where it's just sort of like, just accept the fact that everything is arbitrary, but also choose, you know, like choose to accept the people that are here with you in this reality. And I think that to make the best of it. Yeah. And I almost feel like that's what they don't say in particular what made them Daniels throw down the remote control and decide never to watch Rick and Morty again. But I almost feel it was that because there was there's certainly a scene in particular I'm thinking of uh, towards the end of this movie where she says something similar. She's sort of like, I could be in any universe. I know that there I've seen universes that are better, you know, where where I could be successful where i could be rich where i could be powerful but i'm choosing to be here with you despite everything yes yes that that is what what it means but more interestingly than that is how the line is delivered which is um it you could see it kind of without the multiverse context right the way she says it like it's it is a mother to her daughter uh, basically saying i could be i could be anywhere but i'm here right you know i could have yeah i could have i could have not shown up for this emotionally, physically, whatever. Um, but yet I did. 
in spite of all the the the, the huge gulf between us culturally and and some all these other different um uh, 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 gaps. Right? But and yet and yet I'm here. I'm I'm, I'm trying. Um, which is a really power, really really powerful moment in this movie. Um, okay, so, so we're talking about the multiverse. We, we, we've gone there. Like let's. Uh, and we're starting to get towards the end of the time that we have to talk about this um, amazing and jam-packed movie. Um, let's talk about the multiverses, uh, the multiverses, and unpack that a little bit more. And like in particular, the multiverse moment that we seem to be having in culture. Um, my theory is that um, basically, since the uh, since the Trump era started, um, we have experienced uh, a series of reality shattering events <laughs> which continuously continually um cause us to really be aware of the contingency of life right and like you know I, I not to say that everything prior to 2016 when trump was elected president was like peachy keen and like was proceeding in a very predictable manner but i think in our culture we can point to 2016 and as this moment where people felt like reality was fracturing Right. I remember at least in my Twitter timeline, people were constantly referencing either Star Trek or community with the, uh, the darkest timeline sorts of jokes. And that continued to persist through the Trump era. Yeah. And then, and then, um, of course, the, the pandemic happened and, um, people are, are kind of constantly thinking about what their lives would have been like, um, were not for the pandemic, were not for this, um, earth shattering reality, um, breaking, experience um and so you know over this period we've had um uh the uh, multiverses is multiverse stories have have uh, seem to have proliferated you know this might be confirmation bias and, and of course we should also acknowledge that like in the marvel cinematic universe they have been doing the multiverse in the comic books for decades before it started to pop up with things like uh, the Loki TV show. And of course, you know, um, just this weekend, you know, the the Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Um, But, you know, they chose to bring those, those very complicated stories to broader audiences only over the last few years. Um, I'm probably forgetting other examples too. Blinky, like, can you fill me in on like what else uh, is, is multiverse in, in the, in the pop culture aside from Rick and Rick and Morty? I mean, I was just thinking about, you know, because the the whole the darkest, most terrible timeline is is becomes a meme, and I think people sometimes even forget where it's from. So, Community was that episode was a long time ago, right? Yeah. And I feel like almost that but, but, episode but. was like a a canary in a coal mine type situation, and of course, like not unconnected because that was a Dan Harmon series, and Dan Harmon is of course the, the mastermind behind Rick and Morty, yep. or one of the one of the two masterminds, and so that like I think that. He obviously was he and the writers, which I assume that like some of those community writers probably bummed along to Rick and Morty, were interested in that idea where it's like you you roll the dice and you create six different universes, um, and maybe like you know radically sort of butterfly effect type uh, scenario changes the outcomes, and um, you know more and more like Rick and Morty becomes an entire TV series about what it's like to live with the implications of that or what it's like to be able to, with a, a, a pull of a trigger, jump back and forth between different versions of, of the universe and like, you know, how you make sense of your own place in that, knowing that there's like a, a thousand carbon copies of you just wandering around, um, you know, just hanging out in the food court. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so remedial like, chaos theory, that community episode was from 2011, right? 
Yeah, so that that feels like a very early incarnation. I can't really think of a lot of multiverse things, but, you know, time travel obviously has been with us for a while. And time travel can take, like, you know, Back to the Future 2 feels like a multiverse story in a way, right? Because you see alternate versions of the same characters at the same time. But, of course, it's less that, like, you know you can shift back and forth between like the, the uh, Donald Trump version of a Hill Valley and the normal version of Hill Valley. And it's more just sort of like, no, we need to go back to the point where the timeline split and unsplit it. Right. right. Whereas that like the, the new reality. So, so the, the back to the future two reality is sort of like, there's a way that the universe should be, and maybe it's gotten knocked off course, but we can still fix it. We can still push it right on course. But the, the the hard truth of these multiverse stories is that like, there's no such thing as like the way that the universe should be. There's no right. There's no true version of reality, right? All these things are true that there is the Donald, the Donald Trump version of Hill Valley always exists, always has exist, always will exist. Yeah, yeah. The same, the same way that where there's a, a version of Hill Valley where, um, Crispin Glover, uh, where George McFly is uh, running a casino and he becomes like a, um, a, a monomaniacal villain. Um, you know, there's every possible, uh, back to the future side character, Pr- uh, principal Strickland is, is like an emperor, of Hill Valley, right? Where he like rules with an iron fist and anyone who's tardy is like summarily executed, right? Like that's a, that's an equally true reality. Um, you know, so like once you get out of the realm of time travel into multiverse stories, it's less sort of like, you know, because time travel is a lot of these stories are always about like, there's a way that things should be either, either like we, we need to go back and preserve the timeline that we know, or like the terminators that we need to, nudge the timeline away from a bad outcome right yeah and that that the multiverse stories are much more complex because it's sort of like um there's no there's no winning necessarily you can't win against the multiverse because all these universes are going to continue to exist you can't wipe them out or you shouldn't be trying to wipe them out because like um even the ones that you perceive as bad, you know, people still live and love that. And I think that, that actually comes out really well in everything, everywhere, all once, right? Is that yeah. the hot dog universe, yeah. which you might think it's like, oh, the hot dog universe is the darkest, most terrible timeline. No, actually, it's the it rock universe. Yeah, right. Well, she does mention at one point where uh, most of the universes are universes where life never came to exist, right? Because like life requires like a lot of things to happen, right? And so that if you think about like somebody who could really experience every possible timeline, the large majority of the infinities that they're experiencing are infinities where there's no people around. Um, much less other versions of themselves. Yeah. Um, so so th- that universe is a bit of a cheat. I think we might might agree, right? Because just to, to cash this out for those who haven't seen the movie, right? Um, we have uh, we, we see because this desolate those rocks. This, yeah, yeah. We, we see this desolate landscape. There are two rocks on a cliffside, and they happen to be, um, you know, that universe's version of Evelyn and Joy, her daughter, right? And they manage to have a conversation. Um, it is, I mean, you just you you accept it, right? If you're if you're if you're if you've bought into the movie's premise, like you you know that again a strength of the movie's execution, you accept that these two rocks are having a conversation through telepathy, right? Even yeah, though it's just it's subtitles, right? So it's it's an extremely long, and I think more striking even than it normally would be because the entire movie is extremely fast paced, extremely loud, has like dozens and dozens and dozens of musical cues, and this is a very slow very calm zen scene with no music with just a sort of sound of, of wind 
uh, carrying the dust around, where it's just simply text on the screen to indicate what the two rocks are trying to say to each other. Yeah. And I do agree it doesn't really make sense because they're they're not supposed to be able to really experience like you know the life of anybody or anything. They're supposed to, I think, unless I'm, I'm forgetting yet another wrinkle on the sort of rules. I think they're just supposed to be able to sort of see all the possible existences of themselves. Uh, um, yeah, <laughs> you know how exactly? Yeah, how exactly the rock scene works? Uh, yeah. Not exactly clear, but like you know th- that gets to like you know to the strength of the movie, like in this most desolate possible landscape. Like it managed to find you know the the the, the characters managed to find meaning, um, a a way to understand humanity is that a fair way to put it yeah i i mean i think i remember it being such a beautiful scene and the rock scene especially was one of those that impressed me because you expect it to be a one-off like how can they come back to that but it comes back in unexpected way i think one of the ways it comes back is that like you go back to that scene but the rock now has eyes it has yeah, the, googly the googly eyes, eyes stuck yeah, to yeah, it yeah. and then the rock starts moving and the the other rock that's the daughter says it's like you're not supposed to do that <laughs> right and she's she's yeah, like so it's, it's lampshaded. Stop me. yeah yeah like, the, i can the do fact whatever that, i yeah. want the fact that the rules are bending is is, is lampshaded a bit for sure yeah uh yes. right and it it it's but I mean, I think I think a lot of this movie is sort of like, you know, I think we talked very early thing on overthinking it is I had a, a quest to figure out what was going on with the submarine in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right, right. I remember um, this. That, yep. th- right. There's a scene where like Indiana Jones, the, the Nazis have taken the, the Ark onto a submarine and, and you see Indiana Jones swim over from the cargo ship to the submarine and climb on top of the submarine. And then there's a yada, yada, yada map scene where the submarine travels to like secret Nazi Island and India is somehow there. And it's never explained how Indy, you know, because if there's one thing I know about world war two submarines, it's that they are not places with, there's not a lot of place to hide. There's not a lot of like empty space where you could just stow away easily on a submarine. And in another movie, in a lesser movie that wasn't so superlative in any way, this would be a glaring plot hole, and yeah. I would be like on a podcast after seeing it, complaining about how like how did that movie even get out of the script? How did they greenlight that script with such like this weird, awkward plot hole that just like made me throw up my hands and want to like leave it the. But n- nobody has ever, you know, I've seen that movie dozens of times, and I it, it took a long time before I even started to question it because the movie is just sort of like you accept what's happening. Because yeah. like it, you're just swept up. You're along for the exa- ride. That's exactly what's going on here. I'm sure there's a lot that doesn't logically make sense. There's a lot of the rules about this movie that like are self-contradictory. But the fact is like you know once you are along for the ride, this movie is is so much fun and has so much sort of confidence uh, in itself that you are prepared to give it all the slack it needs. Yeah, yeah, and you know to the broader point, right? It manages to create quite a lot of order out of what would otherwise be chaos right you know of all the events that happened in the movie um the multiverse and then the the events you know happening in our lives as well too right the context with which this movie lands in a way like it could not be better timed right it is uh it is might be everything everywhere all at once but it is also at this specific time and on that note i think it is the specific time to end this discussion uh blinky i think it's fair to say we could probably record like another hour or two <laughs> on this um there's there's just so much oh yeah i mean it's, um, 
it, yeah, it, it's last a thought, super last thought, fun movie. Thought, okay. It's a profound movie. Uh, last man, I only get one more thought. Yeah, it's just that yeah, I came out of this movie um, feeling that it had a, a strange, and I'm sure coincidental, because like obviously this movie, the script has been in progress for you know most of a decade. Um, but strange similarities to Turning Red of all things, because Turning Red yeah, is also about that. a multi-generational family of immigrants with the, the, you know, the, the older, the sort of elderly family member being from the, from the old country, right. And being set in these like very old school ways and not approving of their sort of like, uh, westernized, uh, descendants. And then it has like the mom who sort of straddled between these two worlds of like being, uh, struggling for the the uh, older generation's approval, but also like you know demanding you, you know um, trying trying to like rein in their daughter and then the daughter feeling like nothing they're ever going to do is good like you know yearning for the acceptance but like sort of feeling like they're never going to get it and also it, and and the thing that really slammed it home for me is the role of the father in the movie where in both movies the the character at first comes up uh, as this almost like comically henpecked husband right that right. the women are extremely loud and extremely strong characters and the husband is sort of like almost this meek figure who, who sort of just tried to like make everyone happy and to like not get yelled at um and that it's only it's late in both movies that the husband sort of emerges as this emotional center, right? As like somebody with like a great deal of wisdom and insight and somebody who can help to bridge the gap between the mother and the daughter through empathy and listening and sort of seeing stuff that they can't see because they're so wrapped up in their own hurt. So like it's it's the central four characters in that family almost sort of line up precisely which yeah. is a weird coincidence yes that's a great observation that also allows me to to take the last word on this cool. which um is about how this movie is really about the immigrant experience in particular like the asian american experience um you know which turning red is you know an extension of that as well too of course you know the the, the chinese canadian experience but in this context the asian american experience and you know I, I will relate this to my own family background as well too right like coming to a new country as a 20 something year old is a similarly reality breaking sort of moment um where you know you can easily you can easily imagine another universe where um the family didn't make that journey over where they lived their lives in the old country um but they didn't do that right and so there's this different version of themselves living here and then that that kind of what if that you know multiverse idea is then passed on to the next generation like myself and my siblings and um and you know other second generation asian american immigrants um uh you know, of a similar background to me where we wonder like, what were our, what, what would our lives have been if our parents hadn't made that momentous choice to break with that reality and enter this universe, you know, this greatly different culture, um, you know, so many miles away from home. And, um, it's, it's a fun thing to do. It's a kind of a sobering thing to do. It is, um, I'm not going to call it futile because it does help you, you know, gain some perspective about, um, your lives and, and you know value the things that you have um but it also kind of you know at the end of you you go through that thought exercise and you wind up in, in the same place where maybe this movie and also rick and morty wind up which is that like you know got make do make the best with the situation that you have in hand right you know come over and yeah. watch, come sit down and watch some tv or or that i mean you know maybe another way to put it is like you know if if everything 
might have happened if everything is true somewhere right if the raccoon thing is true somewhere then the only thing that matters is like the real feelings that people have for you specifically you know despite the fact that you're not living your best life right despite the fact that like all of us could be movie stars in another reality like the fact is like we're here together and we're sharing something and that means something even if everything else is also true yeah yeah and we have shared this discussion with you um, we hope you enjoy it. We hope you continue um, to, the discussion on the, in the comments on this, on the website, uh, on the Discord. I think hope we have a really good conversation on this uh, in the Discord chat. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that does it for us. Um, this has been the Overthinking It podcast. Um, uh, check us out on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to the level of scrutiny. It probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve You know, we failed to make the very obvious joke at the top, which is that uh, this is an alternate universe where Matt and Pete don't do the podcast and it's just us now. <laughs> oh, no. All right. I'm going to go ahead and, like, eat this mechanical pencil and jump myself to another universe where that happens. I'm going to um, say that Terminator Salvation was a good movie and I will acquire strange <laughs> and odd new skills. Direct to the hot dog universe with you. <laughs>